y'all out. I'm your host, Grace Gibson. Today, I'm so happy to be joined by longtime friend and fellow alum of Houston's High School for Performing and Visual Arts, Olivia Kaufman. Olivia joins us today from Arizona, where she is currently in flight school. Olivia is a pilot, a paramedic, a firefighter, a wife, a mother, a cancer survivor, a French horn player, and Olivia has been an out and proud, unapologetically butch lesbian since before I met her in high school. I'm so excited to hear what she has to say and learn more about her journey. So welcome, Olivia. All right, cool. Well, I'm really glad to be here um, on what is what the third episode Third of episode. your podcast. Oh, super excited for you. Thank you. I'm super excited to be part of it. I'm super proud of you. My name is Olivia Kaufman. I am, uh, my pronouns are she, her, 35 years old, and I am a lesbian female. I identify as masculine of center. I wear many hats. Uh, my favorite hats that I wear are I am a wife and a mom, and I am, as of yesterday, technically a pilot. So. <laughs> Thanks. I am um, a flight student out here in Arizona learning how to fly airplanes on a pathway to um, the airlines. So it'll be a few years till I get there, but that's what I'm doing right now. I'm actually technically for the first time in decades unemployed. <laughs> nice. So I'm very, I'm very fortunate to have a wife who's uh, super supportive and who's helping me start this and, and walk on this journey that, I, that I'm that i on to uh, becoming an airline pilot. So. That's awesome. Congratulations. Yeah, I feel very fortunate. Thank yeah, you. I saw your Instagram post yesterday and I was like, what does PPL stand for? It's a private pilot license. That's what, cool. That's yeah. awesome. How exciting. It was, um, it was a lot of work, but uh, I mean, it was a huge relief. It was really cool to actually get the paper and and know that I legally can go fly an airplane wherever I want to. That's amazing. Still, So are you still in the program or is this like your graduation? Yeah, no. So this is actually just the very beginning part of the program. The program is, uh, it's a round about 13 month program for one of the major airlines. A lot of the major airlines are now starting their own sort of academies that take, that are able to take people from zero flight time like myself and train us to become airline pilots through partnerships with other smaller companies that fly, you know, smaller jets and turboprops, multi-engine planes for hire. And so that's how we'll build the hours uh, after instructing and all that stuff. So it's a pretty cool deal. That's awesome. I'm so happy. Pretty cool deal. That's a Thanks. really accomplishment, but it makes it's, sense. You probably can't fly a plane until you have your pilot's license, right? Oh yeah. The, the private pilot license is like the very first small step in this whole thing you know you get you get your private pilot and then you get your instrument rating and then 
then you get your commercial pilot and then you get your multi-engine add-on and then you become an instructor and you instruct and then you fly kind of some of the smaller passenger planes and build up your hours. And then once you hit about 1800 hours, you can, you can go to the airline, wow. you know, the major airlines. So How yeah, there, there are lots of different pathways for that, but. That's so cool. How long is like 1800 hours? I can't, I can't. Yeah. It's hard long. to, it's hard to fathom. So for, for everyone else is different, you know, it kind of depends on how often you're flying and, in what capacity, right? So like some people just are certified flight instructors and work at a flight school till they hit 1800. Some people fly crop dusters or tow banners, you know, those banners you see in the sky that tow those banners to build them up. And of course, it depends on how many days a week you're flying and for how long. And so, but for me, it'll probably be, I'd venture to say probably another two and a half-ish years, maybe three years, depending on weights and life and whatever before I'm in, in the right seat of a 737. But, you know, it'll be worth it. That's not very long. In the <laughs> scheme of things, not really. No. Because how long have you been working toward this so far? Uh, since November. So, yeah. what are we in? July? Yeah. So, about eight months. But it's taken me a little longer because I have a family and everything. So, the pace... The pace that I've been going is slightly slower than some of my classmates. So some of them are in commercial already. So, yeah. Wow. That's quick. (laughs) It it, it sounds quick, but it's, it's a lot of flying and it's a lot of work. Anytime that you're, you're in the back of a plane with, you know, a bigger plane, a jet like that, your pilot's got a lot of hours under their belt. Right. I'm very, very skilled at disassociating. So... (laughs) have a lot of experience in that so I, so I get on an airplane and I'm like yeah this is cool like I, like I don't give any thought to the pilot sorry no offense I don't give any thought to the pilot or like honestly that's probably best you're very very trusting of other people and expertise and that's a good quality yeah it is it's not really like a conscious choice but fair enough fair enough I'm not complaining I'm not complaining. I think in that space, especially it's beneficial. Absolutely. If you (laughs) overthink, if you overthink that your mind can run away with you a little bit. I can't even wrap my head around the idea that like the plane is in the air. You know, I am so disconnected. That's okay. If that's what keeps you calm through the flight and you get, you get to where you're going and you're happy at the end, all is well. (laughs) Okay, sweet. Well, thank you. So yeah, it's kind of a midlife midlife career change for me, which is a little scary, you know. Right. What inspired that? That's a good question. <laughs> you know, I there were a lot of factors. Um, I spent 13 years in emergency medical services, so I was an an advanced EMT, or back then we called an inter- EMT intermediate because I'm old and that's what we called them before. Now they're called advanced EMTs. So I was an advanced DMT for about eight years of my career. And then September 2014, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. I was in paramedic school, had to stop in order to get treated. So I went through all my treatments. And then in 2015, I finished my treatments. And then I um, went back to school, to paramedic school, to to because there are three levels of being an EMT. I don't know if you know this, but there's I an EMT base. You can assume okay. I don't. Okay. Fair enough. So um, a lot of people don't know this, but there's like three levels of being an EMT in Texas. And that is an EMT basic. And then there's the advanced EMT. And then there's paramedic. 
And so I was kind of the middle level two for a while. And then I went to paramedic school and got my, we call it the red patch because in Texas, paramedic patches are red and EMT patches are blue. So I got my red patch and continued to work my way up at the agency is working for a large county agency, North Houston. And yeah, so I kind of worked my way up. I got, I got credentialed as an in-charge paramedic there, which is um, kind of a step up. It's more of a leadership type role. And I got pregnant during the COVID time. So for the first, the beginning part of COVID, they put me in the office along with all of the majority of the other pregnant women that I, that I worked with because nobody knew what COVID was going to do to pregnancies. And our medical director, luckily out of an abundance of caution, said it was fine if we all kind of worked light duty, I guess you could say, but we just were kind of in a safer spot in, in our administrative office. I had Jet, his name is Jet, my son's name is Jet. Um, I had Jet in September of 2020. And then uh, when I got off of my maternity leave, I went back to the field. So it was still kind of in the thick of COVID. That's when I really realized what was going on. I I was kind of, I mean, I, I knew what was going on because my job in the office was to supervise a COVID information call center where we were kind of trying to funnel people their resources for being tested and being treated and all these things. Um, so I knew to an extent what was happening, but I didn't know what was happening in the field. Yeah. And then I went back out to the field on the ambulance and was deeply affected by by the the gravity of what was happening. And I consider myself lucky that I wasn't out there in the very beginning of it, but I I could only imagine how how it had been prior to me going back to the field. Mm -hmm. And I guess I got a little bit disengaged with it when uh, a lot of the general public were kind of compliant and on board with the vaccinations and the, I mean, overall existence of COVID. But there was a good number of people in that area that were just vehemently against helping us out in the public health sector, that really started to um, affect morale, I think, for many of us at work, but especially for me. And the fact that people were now sort of not heeding advice of medical professionals, they, they didn't trust us, they didn't view us as helpful so much as they used to. And then, you know, there were times when we would be attempting to treat somebody's family member and trying to help family members understand the gravity of the situation with their loved one and being told that it was, we were lying and it wasn't real and it's a hoax. And so, you know, that, that kind of started to really affect my ability to be as compassionate as I wanted to be. I don't think that I showed it outwardly, but Compassion fatigue is real. And uh, I think a lot of healthcare providers sort of felt that. And I was beginning to feel that and I didn't like it. You know, I, I joined the medical community and, and the medical field in order to be compassionate and helpful. And when I, I began to realize my fuse was a lot shorter, my, my sort of tolerance for, for things was starting to close in. And, you know, so I felt like it was time to sort of seek something else out. And I wanted to seek something out that was going to help me provide well for my family. And this is the reason I, I didn't, I didn't end up being a performer, right? We went to the performing arts high school. The reason I didn't become a performer by trade, hats off to people who do, is that I need discipline and I need to be forced 
to be disciplined. I need the uniforms. I need the protocols. I need the regulations. I need the rules. That's that's the only way that I'm successful with work, with with my career. Performing, I felt like it was all up to me. And so if you leave it up to me, I'm just going to do what is fun at the time. And yeah, you know, business will come later. And then suddenly bills come due and I'm like, uh-oh, <laughs> you know, so I know that about myself. It just, I just couldn't have done it. I love performing and I think it's outstanding when people have like the personal discipline to just do that. That's not me. <laughs> so. I mean, that takes, that alone takes discipline, right? To accept that about yourself and to adjust your lifestyle accordingly, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, life is, life is a, series of trial and error and ups and downs and so you know when you figure out what works you have to stick with it right yeah so a friend of mine that I actually worked with on the ambulance was explore also exploring the aviation field and we were working together on the ambulance actually I was his partner on the ambulance and he was just like hey take a look at this and turn the turn the computer monitor he had done a lot of research and he kind of sort of already had his heart set on doing this and he was like doesn't this sound great (laughs) and you know the first couple times he said that to me I was like yeah that sounds good okay thank you have fun have fun at pilot school I'll just keep being thank you (laughs) right right (laughs) the more he talked about it uh the more it started to sound really good and so I started doing some research with him he and I go to different schools, but uh, he's still in Texas. I'm in Arizona. He is um, much further along in his, his program is a lot faster than mine. But, uh, well, about the time he was leaving, I talked to my wife about it and I said, just take a look at this. Mm-hmm. And at first, you know, it was kind of the same reaction. She had the same reaction to me as I did to, to my friend about it. But at uh, first she was like, oh, okay, okay. And then one day she had some free time at work and she started searching some things and she came back and was like, Hey, look at all this stuff I printed out and handed me like a, probably like a two inch thick packet of papers that she had printed at work about different flight schools and loan programs and all that stuff. And I said, Oh, you really, you really given this some thought, huh? And she said, yeah. So we had an extensive conversation about how, how we would make it work, you know, financially, given our mortgage and our kids and school years and jobs and a move to Arizona, potentially, if I got into one of these flight schools here. And I ended up applying for a couple of these programs out here, and I, I got into one of the major airline programs out here. And so when I got in, we we really talked about the logistics of all that, kind of figured out how it was going to work and uh, made it work. So here we are in Chandler, Arizona. (laughs) Awesome. That's so sweet. And your wife, doesn't she, is she in the medical field as well? She is. Yeah. She's a nurse. She's an emergency department nurse. Okay, cool. And so has the rest of your family, because I know y'all were, you were long distance for a minute. We were. Yeah, we were. It. So I moved out here first. Right. Um, We were foster parents before we moved. So at the time when we decided to do this, we had two foster children who were living in our home in addition to our three. So I have 
I have two stepkids, one's 16, one's 12. And then I have Jet, who I carried. And then we had the two foster kids. So we had five total. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> it was a lot, but it was, I mean, it was, there's never dull up. The kids were, the kids were fun in it. So they, they're in a really good spot right now, I think. So one of our foster kids was medically complex. She had some cognitive delays that were likely sort of just because she had never been to school and she had never been sort of introduced to any of these and any learning whatsoever prior to coming to us. So our goal was to sort of give her some normalcy for a six-year-old. She couldn't go to daycare. The state would not provide that benefit for her because of her medical complexity. So my wife took a job as a school nurse at an elementary school so that this little girl could go to school with her. And if anything, if she were to need any attention with her with her central line that she had, if she were to need any attention, my wife could just immediately sort of give her that care that she needed. Uh, so for the last year, up until she moved here, she was a school nurse coming, going from being an ER nurse to a school nurse and is now back in the ER. <laughs> Drastic difference. <laughs> I'm sure. So, uh, so anyway, that was the reason that they couldn't leave. The two foster kids went to the, their uh, potential adoptive home. I'm actually unsure what the status of their court situation is, but they went. They moved into a wonderful potential adoptive home, thriving, doing wonderfully. So by the end of the school year, then the foster kids were in that home, and then my older two had to finish up their school year and. Rachel had to finish up her school year as the school nurse as well. So they, they just got here a few weeks ago. I was about to say, you're talking end of the school year. That's like two months yeah. ago. Yep. I flew in and drove them out here uh, two, three weeks ago. Wow. So how's yeah. that? <laughs> it's it's really great. I mean, it's 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 been, so I got kind of used to being by myself mm-hmm. and not in like, not in like the shady way, but, and, but <laughs> just sort of. <laughs> I developed, you know, my study habits and everything as a, just by myself. Very routine. And, uh, right. Because because there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of study to be done for flight school, just in general, for all the ratings and all of the licenses and certificates that you can get. And so I developed a good sort of flow. I actually was able to dial in my health and fitness. I, I lost like 14 pounds, been going to the gym, eating well. Because, I mean, let's face it, I'm a good mom, but I'm not mom of the year. Like... Uh, I'm not perfect. So, you know, we we did a lot of chicken nuggets, frozen pizzas, peanut butter and jelly, grilled cheese, you know. Sounds delicious. Also, I mean, they're absolutely delicious. From my limited knowledge of parenting, there's very few clear paths to like being good or perfect or whatever. It's just the parent you are, right? You know, I told myself, I told myself when I was, I was pregnant with Jet and I told myself, I'm going to be that mom that like makes my own baby food you did not think that I did think it I thought it (laughs) and that's about as far as it went I tried to make baby food once and was like this is a lot of effort I cannot so I thought that I was gonna be like that all organic no processed foods no red dyes I'm gonna make my own everything I'm going to grow my own vegetables. I don't know what I was thinking. It was pregnancy hormones. It was a very weird time. Uh, it was a weird time for everybody. I, I'm i not that mom. No. And that's okay. 
I think that's great. Um, but I will say that I I've I made a, a pretty steep change for myself, which is kind of trickling over into my family because we now buy better foods. And I'm not saying I don't boil chicken and eat rice every day. Like, you know, we eat great food. But, you know, my kids are sort of as a result eating a lot more balanced, a bit healthier than, than they were. So we're all kind of winning here. That's great. Everything changed. Right. Just Everything changed. Weeks. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's so great, you know, because I really miss them. I couldn't imagine doing this, you know, and, and I think this is like hashtag first world problems. But, you know, I, I couldn't imagine it having been gone, you know, and not having any communication, like video communication and, and things with my family. It helped a lot to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel really lucky that we live in a time where all I had to do was call them up on FaceTime and I could see my kiddo's face. Yeah. So that was, that was good. But yes, I, I've had to learn how to balance, you know, taking care of my family, spending time with them and studying and flying and going to the gym and all that stuff. It's been a learning curve, but I mean, ultimately I'm so happy that they're here. Yeah. How is everyone, including yourself, liking Arizona? Arizona's so I think I don't know why I had this weird image of Phoenix in my head. I I I think I thought it was like Florida. Oh. Like I I don't know with the with a bunch of old like retired oh, well, New that, Yorkers that's that are like probably, <laughs> That's probably still accurate though, right? It's kind of accurate. The Phoenix area, especially the area that I'm in in Chandler it's like a suburb it's a beautiful suburb I mean this the, this they really take care of, of their environments out here it's not as green as Texas is because it's the desert you know so a lot of the landscape is like rocks and stucco and 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 all of that stuff so it, it took a minute to get used to kind of the lack of color I guess you could say right Get that. But but really, like the huge majority of the city and the outer lying areas are very tidy. They're kept up well, and the, their roads are in great shape. There are a ton of parks here, a ton of parks in every little subdivision on street corners. There's huge municipal parks. There are huge municipal parks everywhere that are that are gorgeous. That are that are like shaded and have splash pads and fun things for the kids and are maintained by the city the municipalities um so when the weather is nice everybody's outside here there are breweries everywhere that are like dog and kid friendly i i find this place to be a very underrated city yeah like i never would have come here just for fun (laughs) but but i mean like People should. There's a ton of stuff to do here. Yeah. It's, it's very pretty. There are mountains, you know, the red mountains in the background. There are um, uh, Native American reservations everywhere here. They've got, like, such beautiful land out here. And and I actually like getting to know a lot about the, the Native American people who are local to here. I've met a lot of them. And I live, I live just right on the outside of one of the reservations out here on the south side of Phoenix. So it's, it's like really cool culturally to get to sort of see a lot more of the native history there. That's awesome. So are the high school age, they're, are they both in high school? Uh, well, my stepdaughter is 12. She's, she'll be in um, seventh grade. 
Okay. Yeah. And you said the oldest is 16? Yeah, he's 16. So that's a, I mean, that's a tough time to move, right? How it is. It is. So um, my stepson is actually at a sort of specialized school right now in Texas. Uh, He just started it. It's very disciplined, very structured. um, And they do get get their high school credits while they're there as well. It's run by the National Guard. It's like, it's a really cool thing. So he won't be back here until the wintertime, until December. We're super proud of him. Yeah, he, he agreed to go do this program. It's it's very intense, you know. It's really really intense. The letters that we get from him are that he's gonna stay and he's gonna stick it out, but that it's it's hard. He is just like me, much to his dismay. <laughs> yeah, I I I am not blood related to this young person, but you knew me in high school. I made a lot of decisions that are similar to the decisions that he makes, and as much as he hates it, I pretty much know his next move. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, in high school, at, at his age and, and a little bit older, that that could have uh, ended up very badly. And so in order to sort of change the decision making techniques and things that he employs on a daily basis, um, we kind of told him about this this program that we found out about through a friend. And he, he agreed to go because he kind of, I think, deep down knows what I figured out about myself as well is that we need structure in order to share. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I, I did share with him. I did open up with him about how, like, how we are similar and what helps. And so I think that he, on some level, took that to heart, even though he had probably never admit it. <laughs> I bet he will one day. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So my hope is that this program really, really helps him learn some good self-motivation, some self-discipline. And then, you know, going forward into adult life, because he's almost an adult, that he's able to carry that with him and become a happy, healthy adult that has a, a fulfilling life, um, that he doesn't sort of follow a, a path that could have led him to a worse outcome. Yeah. So ultimately, we care very much about his his happiness and success and health. And so... And I think he knows that. So we're yeah. super proud of him. We're very, very hopeful for his future. Um, he's a great kid. He he is uh, he's one of those guys that that if you present him with a problem, like something is broken or you can't, or having trouble getting something to work, he's already got a solution. Mm-hmm. He can he can work with it and figure out solutions that you never would have thought of. You know, he, he's that kind of guy. So I think that he'll end up doing something that's very like problem solving, solution oriented when he's an adult, which would be great. And uh, and my stepdaughter, she is she and her brother are very opposite. You know, like polar opposite. I don't know if you are you that way with your sister. Yes. Well, we have a lot in common. Also, I mean, we have very similar mannerisms. We have the exact same voice, and we have the same sense of humor. But like lifestyle is very different yes my sister and I as you know are also very opposite really um yeah we have like the same sense of humor but we're just completely opposite human beings so my my so my stepkids are the same way even just down to like their hair color and their skin complexion and everything about them is like just you could not get more opposite and so my stepdaughter is one of those kids that she doesn't have to like try hard 
to learn things. She's like a straight A, occasional B student, is like super social, like the ringleader of her friend groups, is like a force to be reckoned with. She is a strong-willed young lady. Uh, She gets that from uh, my wife. And I mean that in the most loving way possible, Rachel, because you're probably going to hear this. (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, so so she's she motivates herself really well and she likes to do she likes to play softball and all that stuff. So, you know, she's her life is different, you know, than than her brothers, but they're both uh looking at some really great bright futures and I couldn't be prouder of either of them. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, and they're both like so amazing with Jet. They're so much older, so they're like they kind of mama and papa bear him. A little bit. He's, he's a little. He's a little bit spoiled. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> how How old is he now? Three? He'll be three in September. So what, what is it? Yeah, he's almost three. Yeah, it's late July. Yeah, he'll be three in a little over a month. It's so funny because I think about when we were kids. It was so like being spoiled was like the worst. Right. Like I felt like I felt like it was such like a bad thing to be was be to be spoiled. And now I'm like, that is absolutely not one of the worst things. <laughs> like <laughs> Yeah, I mean it kind of it kind of depends on the behavior that's if you're like super loved and like you get a lot of attention and support and you're used to people treating you well and like you're very nurtured and then what like you're used to getting your way like that can those people can go very far (laughs) they probably become the ceos yeah that's what i'm i'm like i don't think like i don't know what was going on in the 90s but i feel like our priorities were very confused (laughs) you know i think i think that like i have such mixed feelings on the 90s because like while i think it was one of the absolute best eras in music I think like we kind of hit a peak with our style and our music in the nineties. You really? know what I mean? Like, like how much better can you get than Jinkos? I was like, what are you talking about? How much better can you get than one of those like big baggy pairs of Jinkos where the pockets go down to your ankles? What could you possibly put in those pockets? It was that big. You, I mean, and what, like, you can't access what you put in those pocket pockets, right? You yeah, have to, you just have to, you have to sit. You just have to sit and get it. Yeah, you, you have to sit and then. Yeah, I did have Jinkos. My mom is like one of the sweetest humans on the planet. She basically hated everything I wanted to wear because yeah. <laughs> it. My mom dressed me before I was able to really like make my own decisions about what I wore. Especially if I was going to some sort of event. Like, somehow I got suckered into going this thing called Cotillion. Did you ever go to one of those? No. that was Okay, well, it was awful. It was where, yeah, it's it's like not my jam, you know, clearly. Now, for context, I grew up on the west side of Houston, like in the memorial area around there. And those those were all the kids that I went to school with, so we did memorial area things and cotillion was one of those things and i don't remember what grade i was in i want to say it was eighth grade possibly i don't remember i'd have to ask my mom anyway 
it was an event where we went to this sort of like ballroom place and we learned how to um and it's not all bad but we learned how to have uh like table manners and how to set a table and eat in a formal environment at the end of the evening we had to learn how to dance with a boy and uh for your girl here that's a little bit uncomfortable <laughs> and at that at that point in time in my life i i didn't i didn't realize that i was a lesbian okay However, I, I did not dress in a feminine way. I dressed in a lot of t-shirts and jeans, a lot of things that would sort of hide my, my shape. And obviously that's also a point in time where we're going through puberty. And so our bodies are becoming more feminine. So that's like, obviously awful for someone like me to outwardly look feminine, but I didn't know why. So at the end of this evening, we were made to learn how to waltz specifically was one of the dances that we learned. And at this this event, uh, the attire was not formal, but semi-formal dinner attire, <laughs> which meant that I was wearing a like sort of a rose pink cardigan set with a skirt that went down um, halfway down my calf, you know, like past your knees and some uh, just small heels like that. Uh, and so my, I, you, you, I looked like a 45 year old <laughs> you know? and, and, and my mom was so excited. She just thought that I looked so beautiful and it was so nice of her to be so complimentary and loving about it. But I looked in the mirror and was just like, what is this? So, so that's what, that was my mom's idea of a great outfit for me. And so, you know, to use the, the Southern phrase, bless her heart and not in the mean way. When I showed up to my home in a pair of Jinkos that I had procured from another friend, I thought that she was going to have a heart attack. I also had a phase in life before you met me where I was kind of like punk, mm -hmm. like real punk. So I would find these articles of clothing that like my friends and I would just like trade clothes all the time because yeah. my mom wouldn't let me have them. And they were like, well, you can't look like that, you know? So exactly. I got my first pair of combat boots <laughs> from a friend. I like traded her a t-shirt for the pair of boots. And I think like later yeah. she realized that that was a really unfair trade but I was not giving her those boots back I was still yeah, that was a great deal for you my parents were like devastated but I was yeah so I would like scrounge up 20 bucks and go to an army surplus store and try to like find cool things because my parents would absolutely rather die than buy me that stuff so yeah I there were several articles of clothing that magically disappeared from my wardrobe <laughs> And, and looking back, I mean, they were, like, horrendous, and I understand. But, I mean, the Jinkos, like, I would have loved to have kept for posterity, you know what I mean? They're worth a lot of money now, did you know that? Really? Oh, yeah, they're worth, like, a couple hundred bucks a pair. Yeah. I'm telling you, they're relics. The 90s, the 90s was, like, I mean, the decade. I guess it is a lot of fabric. So. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. It's denim. It's a lot of denim. What? <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling uh, you. Okay, so in the 90s. 
Can I hear a little bit more about, about your childhood and your upbringing? Like, yeah. How, how do you remember yourself as a kid? Yeah. So I, um, so first of all, I had like the most loving and wonderful upbringing. My parents have been married since prior to my sister and me. My mom is like such a caring, nurturing, outwardly loving human being, um, extremely empathetic. And I grew up and my dad was like, also very caring and loving um, and was the the kind of guy he was a great girl dad he was he's a very gentle guy but he also like coached all my sports teams and both of my parents have been very involved in our lives for our entire lives and so growing up they they provided just a wonderful home we kind of lived in the same area on the west side of Houston over there for you know all the way through schooling I always felt loved and cared for. So growing up, I, as a small child, even my mom will tell you that Halloween was always a fun time. It's one of my favorite holidays. But as soon as I was old enough to decide what I wanted to be for Halloween, I was like Power Rangers and Ninja Turtles, not Pink Ranger, Yellow Ranger. I was Red Ranger. That was it. No questions asked. Like I have photos of myself as like a pirate but not a female pirate, like a male pirate, a masculine pirate, I guess, not necessarily male. And and before I was able to make those decisions, uh, my mom would dress me up as like Madeline, <laughs> which was fine, which it was a cute costume. She, she sewed it herself, you know, but, but, you know, so, but when I was old enough to choose, it was masculine, it was masculine characters that I wanted to portray. Mm-hmm. Growing up, I often found myself um, trying on my dad's clothes in their closet, not my mom's. And my sister was opposite. My sister would put on my mom's dresses and I would put on my dad's blazer and thought that I looked great and kind of slick my hair back, you know, put it back in a ponytail and slick it back. That's I spent my childhood kind of just doing that. Like as long as I've been able to choose my own clothes, I never put on a skirt. I never put on a dress I ne- unless I absolutely had to. I never did. Um, I wanted long shorts. I wanted from the boys section of the store, those clothes. And for a long time, my mom refused to buy me clothes from the boys section. So I would just pick out clothes from the girl section that were less feminine. And that that made her happy. And then there there was a time actually around the time that I began at the performing arts high school with you guys was when I actually told my parents in the store one time. I want to shop in that section. And it was a, the the boys, or I guess it was men's or boys. I don't know how big I was, and I'm pretty sure it was men. My mom refused. That was the first time that I had ever felt like my mom wasn't really accepting of my presentation of myself. And that's after I'd come out. But, you know, and she was okay with me being a lesbian. She just wasn't necessarily okay with me shopping in the in the guys section of the store and I don't know to this day I'm not really sure whether that was because she was just like embarrassed to be doing that or if she truly wasn't accepting of how I wanted to present um so my dad went shopping with me side note when I came out to them I was in my sophomore year of high school okay and my mom wasn't she wasn't quite excited about it she she accepted it but she wasn't stoked about it My dad's reaction was, uh, oh, yeah, we've known since you were about five. (laughs) (laughs) 
How did that feel? Was that validating or like annoying or disrespectful or how did it, that feel for you? It was kind of, I think I, I felt like it was more validating because, because it didn't, it didn't seem like a new, like a shock, you know, and while I was one for shock value back then, <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it was validating because it meant that he, that there weren't going to be any meltdowns or, you know, serious problems with my, my relationship with him at the very least it took my mom a little bit to come around and and I learned later on that and I think this is a common thing for our generation back then at that at that time anyway we graduated in 2006 so that must have been like 2004 ish 2003 2004 that I came out and you know you remember back then right it wasn't I don't want to use the word accepted because we're still sort of facing some issues right now with that but it was not as widely recognized, right? Like people were not as out. People were not as accepting of that information back then. There was still a lot of bullying and discrimination and things that were happening back then. And I learned later on that that the reason that my mom was not okay with it was because she was scared. (laughs) She was scared that... um, I was going to be treated. Here's my son. Come here. (laughs) What's up? Can you say hi to my friend, Grace? Hi. (laughs) That was so cute. (laughs) Sorry about that. Yeah, he's he's like a three-nager, so he wants to be, he wants to be involved in everything. Yeah. Which is great. He's, he's exploring the world. That's wonderful. But yeah, um, so oh, I learned that a lot of her negative reaction was that she was worried that I was going to be mistreated mm-hmm. by society. So because my mom is such an empathetic person, she accepted it. She had a rough time being okay with it until she realized that I was going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like, honestly, it sounds like our parents are kind of similar. <laughs> I've met I've met your dad (laughs) yeah okay yeah very much a girl dad yeah and my mom too like I remember when I was really young because I grew up I grew up in Montrose and so Mm -hmm. I I knew what gay was really young because like a bunch of the like characters in my childhood were gay men and lesbians and so like all of our neighbors you know and so I I remember asking my mom at a really young age, like, what if I'm gay? And she was like, I would be really sad for you. My mom's still like the fear of just not having the best life possible and is kind of where my mom exists, I guess. Yeah, and I, I also got the got the question like, well, are you gonna have children mm-hmm. then? You know, and so, and I think, I think that's something that's very important to our parents' generation and in, in their generation it was very important to like marry and have children, you know, just like societally. And while things have changed, you know, it, it, with with our generation, and there there are lots of people who don't have children by choice, which I think is fantastic. If that's like children should be a choice. I mean, like that's children are incredible. If if you want to be a parent, you know, kids are expensive. <laughs> and there's a lot. There are a lot of things that. And our parents and the generation before them were shaped 
to believe that certain things were, were really important and grandchildren is one of those things. And so obviously that was a question, right? Well, how, well, I wonder if we'll have grandchildren then. But they, it came out as like, well, if you're gay, then how are, how are you going to give me grandchildren? I want grandchildren. But jokes on them, they got a grandkid anyway. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, they got they got three from me. Mm-hmm. I told you my nieces, she just turned two. And so my parents relocated to the D.C. area 15 years ago. So they live in- Right the- after we graduated? Yeah, they moved the summer between my sophomore and junior years of college. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, that was a long time ago. And so they've been there, they've been there for so long and my- my sister and I both lived in New York for a while. And then uh, my sister and her husband ended up in not just the DC area, but the exact same like town <laughs> as my parents. And so now my parents live like 15, 20 minutes away from my uh, sister and my brother-in-law and my niece. And it's like, they watch my niece. It seems like yeah, that's cool. And- our parents love to hang out with their grand their grandkids because they can give them back at right. the end of the weekend. <laughs> I think that all of the time. Yeah. As an as yeah. an aunt. <laughs> so yeah. Okay, so back to high school time. So I know you and I were in the same class at HSPVA, but mm-hmm. transferred in. I think you mentioned that. What year did you transfer in? Where where were you before? And what was it like transferring? into a school like PVA. Yeah, so it was it was it was really funny. I so I went to a, a high school called Stratford High School in the it's in the Spring Branch School District. I got into a little bit of trouble at Stratford. I was in the marching band, you know, and we went on a trip and I decided that I was going to uh, partake in the use of some substances that required you to be 21. And mm-hmm. I was obviously not 21. I was a sophomore in high school. And so we got caught and in a lot of trouble. And um, that was not the only decision I made along those lines. So my parents basically gave me an ultimatum and said that I already have a bad reputation. There aren't really any more opportunities left for me there. I think that was the way it was put. Interesting. There's nothing really left. There's nothing really left for you here. At that time, I was I was a sophomore and my sister was going to be a freshman. So my sister is two years behind me. And my sister had been singing with the Houston Grand Opera for a really long time in the in the children's chorus and then all the way up through her middle school years. And she wanted nothing more than to go to HSPBA. She auditioned for the high school for, for the performing visual arts in the vocal music program like you you were in vocal right yes Yes. so she auditioned and got in well i happened to play uh, an instrument that was not not so common i played the french horn and my parents said well listen you're actually pretty good at the french horn do you want to audition for this school and just have have a fresh start and i said whatever so (laughs) i did that yeah, I went ahead and because I, I was I was pretty disengaged with school, you know. I I actually swam on the on the Stratford swim team, and that's that and marching band were the only things that I found fun. So I actually gave the band some effort, is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. And so I, I ended up being pretty decent French horn player, and I decided, sure, whatever, I'll audition for HSPVA. 
I ended up getting in and I was like, oh, wow. Okay. So I got into this school and I didn't know what to expect, to be honest with you. And so when I got there on my first day, I was walking down the hall. And so mind you, like at this point in my life, I'm out as a lesbian. Right. And I'm not, so I, my hair was about down just past my shoulders still. And I, I wore feminine clothes that weren't feminine, like t-shirt and jeans situation. So <laughs> I, I was walking down the hall and Reggie, I didn't know him yet. You know, Reggie stops me and is like, oh my God, are you the new lesbian? <laughs> but like in the, cause he's, he's like six foot something he's huge i'm i'm five foot six so this like really tall guy who i thought was probably gay like stops me in the hallway and is like oh my god are you the new lesbian and and i and i mean like with the most sincerely excited expression on on his face and i looked behind me because i was like surely he's not talking to me and i looked behind me and there's no one behind me and i looked at him and he goes yeah you aren't you the new lesbian and I said, um, yes. <laughs> and he was like, hi, I'm Reggie. And just like, it was so friendly uh, right off the bat. But I was so taken aback. I was so shocked by like the right off the bat, just saying it out loud. And because at Stratford, it, it wasn't, it wasn't exactly not okay to be gay, but it wasn't exactly okay to be gay either. The, it was just like people knew you were and they kind of talked amongst themselves about it but I didn't really s- feel like I was gonna get beaten up or anything although I hung out with kind of a the kind of punk rock crowd sort of and then I also hung out with a lot of the theater and band kids so it wasn't I wasn't really out of place among them and my first girlfriend ever was kind of like a punk rock girl so uh, amongst those groups of people I wasn't I wasn't really out of the ordinary but but in the school as a whole I was so coming to a school where I was one of like a couple a few thousand people and was just kind of invisible and in my own little group being sort of immediately recognized was like super shocking to me and I thought to myself like that was kind of (laughs) cool and so I ended up like taking that that attention thing and running with it a little bit. That's when I sort of forced the more masculine presenting clothing. I chopped my hair off. It was like shaggy. Uh, my hair was like shaggy. I wore a hat all the time and like had this little, can I say the F word on this? On yes. this thing? All right. That's kind of a little like fuck boy style kind of thing. you remember i wear like these like kind of fitted jackets with my boy jeans and converses and my hat with my shaggy hair and then i was like i was that girl that was like the the fun experiment for all the girls who were questioning and you know what like i loved it (laughs) i loved it i back in the day i loved it and then you know of course of course back then the l word was coming out right like that show Right. And so I was going to exactly because because people associated you with shame. Yes. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like my question is, what came first? Did was Olivia uh, was Olivia first or Shane? <laughs> no, I well, I didn't know. I think I came. I think I came first. Yeah, I think so, too. But they're <laughs> very close. I mean, it was like very close. 
and then when that show came out and and somebody somebody alerted me to it because i didn't i didn't know somebody said oh my god you're like shane from the l word and so that was that is that <laughs> That was said to me like two or three or four times before I said, I need to figure out who this, I need to figure out what this, what this means. <laughs> and I watched the first couple of episodes and was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and then it took me a little bit to figure out whether it was a compliment or not. And I think it's kind of half and half, you know, cause Shane's like pretty attractive. So, I mean, I feel like looks-wise, that was a compliment. And, and, like, back then, I used to look a lot like her, actually, but I didn't realize it. So, when people were telling me that I, w- that I was just like her, I didn't realize that they meant looks and lifestyle. <laughs> and so, I, I realized that I actually kind of looked and acted like this character from the show. Of course, I don't look anything like her now, but back then, when I was 18, I looked just like her. Shane was one of those, you know, obviously that was had a great reputation for being great in bed um, but she also had the reputation of never being able to hold down a relationship right while I had relationships back then I was not uh, particularly faithful in, in them because I got a lot of attention and back when I was 18 I didn't really know how to manage that I was not the best um, girlfriend back then sorry Amanda um <laughs> She knows we're friends, but um, so so there there are aspects of that Shane Shane type of lifestyle that that were fun, and there were some some decisions that I made that uh, I definitely wouldn't make as a thirty five year old. Well, the difference between you and Shane is that you're talking about high school and maybe your early twenties. <laughs> yes, Shane was a little older. I also. Yeah. I- I won't go down the whole rabbit hole, but I think Shane was so tortured in part because yeah. she was not monogamous. Like she was a polyamorous yes. person that just yes. did not let her character do that. Right. You know, back then when we were in high school being polyamorous, I'm sure that there were people who were poly. I didn't know them. Oh. And I was like deeply ingrained at, you know, at HSPBS, deeply ingrained in the in the LGBTQ community of Montrose, mm-hmm. you know, all the way through my mid 20s. And I, I did not really know any poly people until probably, well, not who were out as poly anyway, until five, six, seven years ago. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't really spoken about much, which I think is absolutely outstanding that poly people have more representation these days and are feel, feel a bit more comfortable coming out as poly. Um, but yes, I, Shane would have been a polyamorous person. I am not part of the poly <laughs> right. community. Right. Well, you were a teeny. Uh, uh, I am not like Shane as a 35-year-old. <laughs> And we will never I, know what happens to her, but I know. <laughs> but I think also when I mean when we were in high school, I have such a spotty memory of high school. First of all, and I also think I had a pretty limited perspective at the time. But from where I was sitting, it felt like homosexuality was super normal. Yeah, totally. 
common. Totally. I felt completely comfortable at HSTBA being exactly who I was. Yeah. I could hold my girlfriend's hand walking through the hallway and not. In fact, I think in the yearbook, we won cutest couple. Did you? Do I have my yearbook? But anyway, that school changed me so much for the better. I went through a lot of really difficult things at HSPBA because I struggled with decision-making as far as things that were detrimental to my health. But I did change for the better because it really helped me accept fully my identity and not just as a lesbian because I had already accepted that about myself, but as, as a masculine of center, lesbian female who was somewhere in the middle of the gender spectrum, like gender presentation spectrum. And I did struggle for a little while figuring that out. But the only reason that I was able to just be fine with it was because I went to high school in a place that allowed me to figure it out. There was a little bit of time where I thought that maybe I was transgender because all of the trans people that I know sort of have similar backstories to me in the sense that they used to dress in dad's clothes in the closet and fantasize. And this is my trans guy friends kind of specifically because that's closest to how I identified. But wearing dad's clothes in the closet, looking in the mirror, with that as my backstory, I kind of figured that that I belonged in that box because that that fit me. And so I kind of began to explore that. And when it wasn't making me feel completely happy, somebody actually said to me, and I'll never forget this as long as I live. And I was, I was very young. I said, you know, you can just be Olivia, who identifies as a female and presents masculine. And that's just fine. That's okay. And that was, that was when it really clicked, that I could just be me in the sense that I can absolutely still identify as a, as a female. My pronouns can still be she, her, but I can still present in a masculine of center way and that that is just perfectly fine because that's just who I am. And from that point forward, that's just, that's just been me, you know, I've and this is how I'm comfortable. And I'm of the opinion that if it weren't for being able to develop that at HSPBA, that I don't know if I would be where I am today in the sense of feeling like secure with that. It allowed me the confidence. You guys as my classmates allowed me that confidence. You know, there wasn't the judgment. In fact, I felt kind of well-liked for it. Yeah. You know, so. Celebrated. Yeah, and I have a lot of gratitude, you know, to my classmates at HSPBA and the staff at HSPBA for just allowing us to be who we were. Yeah. And what other environment provides that to teenage kids back in the early 2000s? Yeah, I experienced extreme culture shock going from HSPBA to University of Texas. (laughs) (laughs) It was really hard. (laughs) yeah I'm sure no but I I I owe a lot of my confidence in myself to my time at HSPBA yeah I remember I really admired you in high school because even then when you first showed up I remember seeing you and you just presented yourself as so confident and secure in yourself and your sexuality and your presentation 
And as someone who I, I was struggling internally with my sexuality, but I had absolutely no idea how to articulate that for a really long time. <laughs> and, um, but I knew it in high school, right? I just really admired the confidence that you presented and like the security and ownership of your identity at such a young age. It was really so you so you knew in high school. I knew that I wasn't straight in high school, but I never processed it. I never processed it. And then I even like dated women and like hooked up with women and like my early and mid twenties. And I just never processed it. And I dating women is hard. (laughs) (laughs) It was a lot. (laughs) So I kept being like, can be easier path of least resistance. Like, and that's what happened. Like, I always felt very untethered to my identity and my life experience. I joked earlier about disassociating and I just, you know, I lived that way for a very long time. And so well, I don't particularly remember you dating anyone in high school. I always had a boyfriend. <laughs> no, it. I felt like I would have a boyfriend for like two weeks and then I'd be sick of it. And then I'd break oh. up. <laughs> I'd have another one and then I'd get sick of it and break up with them. And um, well, I was so absorbed. I was so absorbed in, in my antics that. <laughs> I just gave, I just have to don't you just have to laugh though at like the things that we said oh, and did back then. I love it I think it's hilarious I'm like when is our next reunion like we're way overdue for one I want to catch up with these people and our 20 year reunion should be uh it's in three years yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> oh god <laughs> 20 year high school reunion that just hit me Oh man, should I take all my kids? <laughs> Jeez. Did you move to New York right after high school? So Amanda, my oh. girlfriend, who I thought, you know, like when you're 17 and you have a, a significant other, you're like, this is the one. And so you're going to go follow them to the end of the earth. So I pretended that I was going to go to college in New York. And I mean, I got into school. I intended to go to college, but I didn't actually go to class. So um, I just had a lot of fun in New York City. <laughs> um, I was at St. John's University in Queens. And oh. um, I'm pretty sure I showed up to about 7% of the classes that I was supposed to. <laughs> like I said, when I'm left to my own devices, it doesn't happen. So I moved back to Texas when Amanda and I broke up because inevitably that was going to happen. And my parents figured out that I was um, failing all my classes. <laughs> So I left college and came back to Texas. Um, I worked at Starbucks for a while and while I was sort of trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And then um, my mom at the time was an interior designer and she had the privilege of designing a new training center for one of the agencies, uh, the EMS agencies that existed in that time called Cypress Creek EMS that was north of Houston, the spring area. And she discovered in doing that job that becoming an EMT was pretty easy in the sense that you didn't need to go to, it it was like a certificate program you can get from a community college, which is great, right? It's very accessible. And so she said, do you think that might interest you? And I said, well, how much school do I have to go for that? 
to go? How much school do I have to go to for that? Because you know I don't like going to school. And she said, uh, well, actually, they said it's just like four months at a community college to get your EMT basic. So I said, all right, but I got that. Four months at a community college. Doable, right? Well, I did. So I went to Houston Community College and got my EMT basic certificate. Uh, and then I began volunteering as an EMT at Cypress Creek EMS, um, at which time I discovered that it was cool because on my very first shift there, I ran a call that was a motorcycle accident. Um, and I say it was cool. This gentleman did not pass away, but it interested me is what I'm saying. It's not cool when people get hurt, but I kind of felt like that was the place for me because I like the adrenaline rush. I like the unknown you know it's it's a const constantly unknown which is it's such a weird such an anomaly right because you go to work and it's constantly not knowing right <laughs> so I loved that you know and it was the protocols and the, the uniforms and the expectations and the professionalism and you know and then the overall importance of the job right I felt like I was doing doing something important then I decided I was going to become an advanced DMT I got my advanced DMT and then I moved back to New York as an adult. I worked in the Brooklyn area uh, on the ambulance, actually Bronx and Brooklyn areas on the ambulance. And although I thought that being that EMS in New York was crazy and it was fun, very exhausting, but it was pretty insane. The wages did not match the cost of living at all. And so I had two jobs and was barely making ends meet up there. And so I came back down to Texas where I knew that, that the cost of living was, was a bit easier and the wages kind of kept up a bit and uh, began working for um, a county north of Houston, a big county agency, very well known and very, very high performing. And that's when I began the longest part of my career. I was there for nine and a half years. That's where I progressed and well, I had cancer and then I, I progressed to paramedic and then became an in-charge paramedic and had that leadership role. And that's where I ultimately ended my EMS career. Even though I did end up leaving the field because I was no longer happy, I feel like I did make a difference in, in at least a few people's lives over that time. Wow. <laughs> so. I'm sure it's really yeah. important work. I also learned, I learned how to be a firefighter. I volunteered for a small time. Rachel and I lived in a small town up near Lake Livingston. And I uh, signed up to be a volunteer firefighter and learned, learned some skills on the firefighting side. I decided that I definitely did not want to be a paid firefighter, but it was fun nonetheless. Really? Yeah. Why was it fun? It was fun. It was, it was fun. I just, I don't know. I just liked it. It was fun. It was hot. <laughs> yeah, I, I like to, I like to learn how to use all that equipment and like you know the the jaws of life and and putting out fires is cool, but uh, out in the country it's a lot different than you don't have quite as much support you know right in the country doing that. But yeah, I mean it was, it was a good time. I met a lot of great people and learned a lot of cool skills. But yeah, so I've kind of done been in several uh, positions in that emergency services. I'm curious about kind of going back to the pilot world. What is it like being the this mask presenting mom pilot? Like in my mind, I'm like, you're a fucking superhero, right? Like you're like, you're like EMT, firefighter, pilot, like literally 
But how is, I mean, what's the day-to-day experience kind of, I mean, it just seems like you're probably a little different from most of the, the people in the park. I am. I am. You know, when I walk around my school, um, there aren't really any other women who look like me. I am a like heavily tattooed uh, woman with short hair and I am unashamed of the fact that I'm a lesbian. I do know at least one other lesbian woman um, at my flight school and she does not discuss it with anyone. I've just been living out for too long, out and proud for too long, that going back, becoming very quiet about who I am just, just isn't really a part of my personality. I don't know if down the road that, that will inhibit my career. I hope it doesn't. But I do know that the airline that whose program I'm part of is a very diverse airline. They value diversity a lot. It is a male-dominated field in general. And it is, I think, a fairly conservative field. Really? Um, I won't be able to show my tattoos really anywhere for any airline that I work for which is okay with me. It, it's just kind of the standard in the industry. I knew that coming in. But um, I'm actually part of several groups on social media. There are specific groups for pilots who are moms. There are specific groups for um, women in aviation. I will say that I do see a lot of misogyny online. I hear a lot of women talk about how they've been in the cockpit and have been told by a male counterpart that, well, there's just another empty kitchen now. And and that that's like, you know, fairly recent. So it is definitely going to be interesting. The world of EMS is actually like somewhat similar, you know, it's still still pretty male dominated. There are a lot of people in, in the LGBTQ community who are in EMS, and there are a lot more women entering that field as well. I So I think that EMS is becoming a lot more diverse when it comes to that. I think that aviation is beginning to. It's just a bit slower. It's a bit behind, I think, I would say, as far as acceptance and diversity, as far as LGBTQ plus community is concerned and the BIPOC community as well. I would be lying if I told you I wasn't nervous about how, how I will be treated down the road when I get to the airline. But I think that I I have the ability to just be professional. Um, and I think that I don't need to stifle who I am if I just remain professional. And that's kind of how I intend to move forward. I wish I could say that it's surprising that the industry is primarily old white men, but that's how most professional <laughs> industries are. <laughs> I mean, that's why I wanted to start this podcast, right? Queerness and like our identity, it takes a level of creativity and courage for someone who doesn't see someone who looks like them or lives a life like them in a role that they decide they want to aim for. You know, I mean, it's trailblazing is what you're doing, right? There have been several... I don't want to say many, and there are not many percentage-wise, but there have been many lesbian women come before me and people of the LGBTQ community who have come before me um, who have, like, begun to blaze this trail. Mm -hmm. And I think that in, in, like, these future generations that we're seeing coming into aviation, I think part of it is because flight school is now becoming more accessible 
for people who were not in the military prior. Um, now that the airlines are creating these these cadet pathways, I think that that pathways to the airlines are becoming more accessible to more people. And in that, I think we'll see more diversity. I think that there's still uh, a bit of a disparity because it is so expensive and it is you ha- pretty much have to take out a loan to go to f- full-time flight school the way that I am. And so if some if someone is unable to take out that kind of a loan, that that can be a hindrance. However, I feel like it has opened up quite a bit the fact that the these airlines begin these cadet pathways. Because of that, I think that we will see more representation across all the whole gender spectrum and across, you know, the LGBTQ community, across race and ethnicity. I hope to see more women of color in the cockpit. I, I suspect that over the next 10 to 15 years, we'll see a, a pretty good shift um, once some of the retirement age people start. Because there's mandatory retirement at 65. Uh, they are looking at making it 67 here pretty soon. But still, I think there's going to be a bit of a shift here mm-hmm. fairly soon. I've been seeing some news articles about all-female crews and and mother-daughter crews in the cockpit, which I think is awesome. There was, I, I saw very recently, one of the airlines had an all-black female crew. Uh, like, they were, ever, all the entire crew was black females. And I was, like, so excited because this is just absolutely the direction that the industry should be going, you know, as far as having people of all genders and all races and all orientations. That's great. And, and my son loves it, so it's bonus. Uh- <laughs> Yeah. Does he think you're, I mean, does he also think you're a superhero? (laughs) Yeah. He, 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 he tells me pretty much daily that I fly airplanes like with a very excited voice. So he, I took him to the airport to see the airplane and he climbed in and was, was sitting in the cockpit and moving the control wheel and everything. And he was really excited. So I, I truly hope, and I did not name him jet by the way. After I got into aviation, I, I didn't even think about that. I didn't do it on purpose, actually. You know, I had him almost three years ago. I was very much still a paramedic and had no intention of becoming a pilot. That's- so it's a little bit serendipitous. And it would be, I think, I certainly won't force it, but I think it would be super cool if my son becomes a pilot named Jet. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So oh we'll God. see. Is there anything? that you want to talk about before? Yeah, I want to talk about the fact that that I'm like so envious of your drag king life. (laughs) You want to know, I'm I'm like, do you know how many H-Town Kings shows I've been to? No. I've been to many H-Town Kings shows. I have been watching them for years since i think pearl bar had just opened up like just opened yeah um but yeah i do like i remember seeing several of those shows and thinking that it would be if i just could have the courage to do something like that it would be so cool because i think like the makeup is awesome the outfits are awesome and i was like i just can't do it i can't get on stage and do that i (laughs) wish i could and then when I saw you get into it, I was like, okay, first of all, no one more perfect out there to be a drag king. Because you were, like, born to be a performer. Aww, we 
we know that I went to high school with you we know that right and I was like how perfect is it for her to like come out as a lesbian get get comfy in this like queer life she's got going on and then to be a fucking drag king just icing on the cake I when you when you said you were joining the h-town kings and that this was your drag persona and you're working on your makeup and your wardrobe i was like oh my god she's gonna nail it like she's gonna be great and i've i'm i've watched every single video clip that you have posted on your um hughes stone page and i'm just like she is just nailing it like you you are nailing it and i just i've i've i wish that i was in houston more but one day i'm gonna come see you perform i'm gonna come watch it and I'm gonna bring I don't know if they'll allow me to bring my kids in there, but I'm gonna bring my wife in if in anywhere that if I'm ever in a place where you're performing and it's kid friendly, I'm gonna bring them because I need I need people in my life to see Grace Gibson on stage as a drag king. <laughs> I don't think I don't think you know how cool I think it is. <laughs> I mean, I'm thank you. Thank you so much. I love I couldn't believe that I got into it either so my first performance was at lambda center are you familiar with lambda center yeah okay so absolutely yeah okay then i went to several meetings at lambda oh you did okay so i came out after i got sober they were announcing the miss mr lambda competition coming up Mm -hmm. and i was like i mean how hard can it be? I do. I like performing. I'll give it a shot. And it wasn't really until the day of that I was like, wait, I don't know how to do my makeup like that. And I don't know what I'm going to do about my hair, but I (laughs) I just did my best, you know, and I had a really great time and I ended up winning. And then I was like, okay, well, I'm just a sober lesbian that didn't come out until, you know, post pandemic and like post, you know, already getting sober. So like, I don't know anyone in so like so like fuck it right (laughs) why not though you know a million percent like it's like I that's that's the thing like I'm like I I can do whatever I want I don't care I don't care (laughs) but I but I had no idea how to get connected with the community because no anyone at Pearl Bar so I started going to the shows here and there and following everybody on Instagram and then they posted on Instagram about having a drag king boot camp which was like a weekly oh perfect a weekly class <laughs> yeah so I did that like a year ago and it's fascinating I want to go to I want to go to Dread King boot camp I don't it, know if they have that here once you're done with flight school you should you should do Dread, Dread King boot camp you know maybe I will okay so to wrap things up I am curious about what you would say to like your younger self now if you could have a conversation conversation with her like I don't know I'm kind of even want to say like pre-HSPVA Olivia I would just tell my pre-HSPVA Olivia that it's okay to be unapologetically yourself and that you can still you will still have a happy and fulfilled life as exactly who you're meant to be mm-hmm um, because I mean, I, I I did not come up with it. You know, like somebody somebody told me that, but that is the advice that I would give my former self. And also, when- calm down. <laughs> would, have been, would have been my other advice. <laughs> no, 
I'm so jealous. Like I like because I feel like at PVA, everyone like like everyone was very again like celebratory of I felt like okay. Also, I have I struggle with this because I have a hard time believing that anyone is straight, which I know is not true. Like I intellectually, I am aware of the fact that people are straight, but I have to convince myself of that. And so like, I just feel like everyone at our high school was super fucking queer. Everyone. I mean, I think, I think most people are at least a little gay. Right. At HSPVA. Yeah. Yes. But I, but your experience. At least when it came to me, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Well, okay. Fair enough. What kind of, what kind of advice do you have for anyone who is queer and interested in pursuing career as a pilot? It seems scary, you know, to to walk into a field where people don't seem to look like you and people don't seem similar to you. But what I do know is this is that we can always learn things from people who are different from us. And that includes the people around us who learn from us. And if we're not represented anywhere, if we don't exist in, in a particular environment, nobody gets to learn who we are. And what I strive to do a lot is I strive to show people that lesbian women who look like me can do the job just as well, if not better. And we can be effective in our roles and we can be professionals and that we can live very, very full, wonderful lives. I have a wife, I have children, I own a home. We pay taxes, we go to work, we, our kids go to school, our kids are sometimes assholes like everybody else. You know, we're very, we're very like, like traditional family unit, aside from the fact that we're both women. So to me, it feels very traditional. It feels very quote unquote normal, right? I love to show people that my life is very, very similar to many other people's lives. And that we're good humans and we're capable. And please join whatever field you feel like fits you best. Because people will learn from you just as much as you can learn from other people. Mm-hmm. That's, that's it. You know, if, if, we're not, if we're not visible, if we're not represented, if people don't know us, don't interact with us, they people are scared of and or do not like the unknown and when they know us and and they become acquainted with us and they learn about our lives we'll no longer be different or scary or distasteful to some people and i've i've seen that in my personal life you know where i've made friends with people who are generally i probably would never hang out with especially in the religious community. I have I have made some friends who maybe didn't know any lesbians before me and then realized that we were also good humans and now, as a result, are very much more accepting of the LGBTQ community. So the more visible, the more present we are in these fields where we historically were not, the more understanding, the more community we'll have in society in general. So please, if you want to join aviation, please join me. You're not alone. And we can do it. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. And also like making the career change. It's like, 
pursue the career that you want, do what you want to do and do what makes you happy and don't do what doesn't make you happy. 100%. If you are not feeling happy, just make the change. Just make the change. It is scary and it does require sacrifice, but it's worth it for just overall health, mental health, and just quality of life. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's so easy to have blinders on about what we have available to us in life. Sometimes it requires another person doing something and it suddenly illuminates that as an option for you that you didn't know is available to you before. And some, you know, and like, that's what, you know, you can do for other people, right. In pursuing. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that what you're doing is really important. Um, Thanks. Yeah. And I'm so excited for you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm excited for you. I'm excited for this podcast and I'm excited to watch you to watch more of your performances and just hear more about your life. Thanks. Yeah. I was thinking like, is this the first time we've had a, like when was, we haven't, I guess we saw each other at the reunion. I mean, we probably said hi. Yeah. At the reunion. I assume. I mean, I don't even really know if we had much of a conversation ever in high school. Like (laughs) I know we ran in. No, I mean, I, but like I was reckless in high school. Like I was doing things that you probably wouldn't have wanted to hang out with me. Probably so. No, I was mostly jealous. I was like, damn, that's someone who knows who they are. And I don't know what I'm, what to do. I had no, I had no, no words for who I was or anything. Yeah. I'm really grateful for the messages you've sent me over the last couple years. I feel like you're queer grandma. Like (laughs) we're the same age, but I'm like, Grace, I've known her since she was. Oh yeah. I don't, I don't know why I feel cause I'm, I'm like absolutely not really older than you, but I feel like, I feel like you're like my new little, my new little queer baby. (laughs) And I'm like, I need, I need to like nurture her queerness. Yeah. No, but, but in all honesty, I'm like so excited that you're out, that you're, that you're out, that you're proud, that you're performing, that you're like, just embrace this side of you, that you're sober. That's like, should not ever be overlooked. Sobriety is like completely incredible and and, and opens up life's eyes, you know, in, in such a, such an amazing way, an unfathomable, an unfathomable way really to anybody who doesn't, who isn't familiar. But, but so like all of these things for you are like this just, new world and I'm like completely stoked for you I think I I just can't wait to see what you do you know yeah me either (laughs) but I but it really meant a lot to hear from you because you know I had like I said earlier I have always admired you and your confidence and secureness of self and as someone who had always kind of been living a little untethered to my identity. And and then when I got sober, it was like all of a sudden I started listening to my intuition, which was a very, very, very new thing for me. And mm-hmm. listening to my needs and my wants and, you know, trying to learn how to validate those things. But it was all new. I had never done that before 
in my, I mean, since I was a baby, like since I started learning how to navigate the world, right? Isn't, isn't it crazy to have clarity? <laughs> it's, I mean, coming out, I remember the day, the day I came out to my therapist, it was like, all of a sudden I believed in like mysticism and like everything all because I was like, I can't, like, I can't believe that this is who I am. Like I can, I can be this person. It was magical. And yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of an unexplainable feeling, but you know, it was, it was a tough road, right? Because I, I knew that it was going to be challenging because I was married to a man at the time and I had to, I had to have some really hard conversations and make some really difficult, you know, changes in my life. And, and so I started, I felt like I started hearing from you, like right around the time that I, you know, sold my house, moved into a tiny apartment with me and my dog. And I felt again, like pretty untethered, you know, like I, I, I didn't associate it all with the person that I was, you know, I was just kind of like mm-hmm. wide eyed, like going into my future and very excited about it. But so to hear from someone who I respect, like I looked up to you when we were kids, but then you and I have stayed on social media and I've followed, you know, how you became an EMT, how you got married, had a family, carried your son, and now going to pilot school. I just have really admired how you've how you've grown into this kind, compassionate, and I mean, really like a superhero (laughs) (laughs) to get these positive supportive encouraging messages from someone that I had always really looked up to as a kid it was really grounding it was like that's awesome yeah it was like validating of my current experience but also like my experience back in high school you know well I'm glad you know I'm 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 just like always 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 here you know if you if you need any encouragement validation whatever it is that you feel like you need you know you're you can call your queer grandma any day of the week <laughs> I like that I'm just gonna I sign off all, all my all my comments on your social media are now gonna include you're know, like your queer grandma says eat your vegetables <laughs> thank you so much Olivia Kaufman for not only sharing your story but also now adopting me as your queer grandchild. (laughs) If you'd like to follow along on Olivia's adventure in parenting and piloting, you can follow her on Instagram at resting underscore butch underscore face. That is resting with a one instead of an I butch face. And if you'd like to get more connected and involved with the Y'all Out community, you can follow going underscore y'all underscore out on Instagram for upcoming events and giveaways and staying up to date on the podcast. So thanks again for joining us today. I'm Grace and I hope you have a great week. Da 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 da